Welcome back to South African Border Wars with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 40 and it's a special edition focusing on one of the most successful military organizations in African military history. That's the 61 Mechanized Battalion Group, which first saw action during Operation Reindeer as Battle Group Juliet, which was targeting Swapo's Western Front at Chittaguera. As you know from previous episodes, one of the takeaways from the entire operation was the need to establish a permanent conventional mechanized combat unit inside the operational area. By January 1979, 61 Mech Battalion was formally named and established at Otavi before moving to Tsumeb in April 1979. It was eventually settled at Omutia, just north of Itoshapan, while the HQ remained at Tsumeb. Joining me for parts of this episode is the former commander and founder, Roland de Vries. A big thank you to him for spending time with me outlining the rationale for the creation of a multi-service brigade. But first, a few words about Swapo's armed wing plan and its decision to begin targeting white farmers and their workers south of Abambaland. In May 1979, 30 insurgents crossed the cutline and walked 250 kilometers south before attacking two farm homesteads, killing four people, two grandparents and their grandchildren. This led to 61 Mech's first deployment in a counterinsurgency role rather than a conventional mobile attack for which it was created. As Roland de Vries explains, the plan to launch this unit had been in the offing for some time as he and Tony Savides worked on the original blueprints. Tony Savides is now retired, like de Vries, and is regarded as one of the finest proponents of mechanized tactics in the African bush. Just a quick note, sorry folks, this is a Zoom interview, so at times the sound isn't exactly what I'd prefer, but bear with us as we expand the story of 61 Mech. Here's Roland de Vries. When 61 Mechanized Battalion Group was established in 1979, it became the baseline unit for the development of these of these doctrines. Uh, I later on became the commander of 61 Mech in 1981-82, and uh, one of the books which saw the light there was the 61 Mechanized uh, Battalion Group's uh, Standing Operating Procedure, uh, which became the baseline for the, uh, the further development of the doctrine. And then uh, Tony and myself started writing the doctrine. This is one of the first doctrines that were written. It is uh, the mechanized infantry platoon in battle. And uh, this became the baseline for the development of mechanized doctrine in the South African Army. De Vries has pointed out before that the combination of the mobile mechanized battalion working alongside unconventional units such as 3-2 Battalion, was one of the major successes for the SADF. I think what was unique with regard to the South African concepts we developed, and this came uh, to the fore uh, during the battles that we fought in, uh, in, in Southern Angola, uh, is where we combined the concepts of unconventional warfare in the form of 3-2 Battalion, operating far behind enemy lines, and uh, uh, mobile conventional units such as 6-1 Mechanized Battalion Group. Uh, and together these two units uh, could act quite offensively, uh, deep inside Angola, also behind uh, enemy lines. It was the combined skills of both the troops on the ground and the officer corps at the time, which realized that using the tricks of night movement would be an advantage for the South Africans in the coming clashes. Having been part of some of these myself, we quickly learned that unconventional use of the cover of the dark 
and changing directions was safer as the SADF moved through southern Angola. It was the concept called jackal operations. It was all about observation, orientation, decision, and then, of course, action. Uh, jackal operations, we're talking about the, the wiliness of, of the jackal. This was really a concept that was developed by General Yannick Helmeis to teach uh, initiative uh, down to the lowest rank. Uh, for example, at, at, uh, at section level, uh, corporal level, uh, where he motivated the, the leader group of our army to think on their feet and to think uh, uh, initiative. And this, uh, to my mind, formed, formed part and parcel of the concept of mobile warfare, because one of the leadership concepts that we that we predicated was uh, that of Auftragstatik, mission command, or what we refer to as command initiative, allowing uh, your commanders to think two levels up and two levels down, allowing them a lot of latitude and flexibility, and uh, also allowing to make to make errors because you can't wait until you have all the information required to make a decision. So the concept of Uno Loop became extremely important. Uh, and to cycle uh, quicker through this uh, cycle of decision making than your folded, uh, which uh, and the Uda stands for observation, orientation, decision and action. Now a, an extremely good example of the 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 jackal concept um, was rooted in some of the tactics applied by 3-2 Battalion, uh, which you know well. The art of war is mostly a dark art, full of diabolical tricks of deceit, convincing the enemy that you're in one place when you've left, or, in other sleights of hand, creating layers of deception, such as this ambush De Vries describes. I can remember well, uh, during one of the operations, I, I, you know, I think back now, it was probably 1981, 1982, there was an enemy detachment of Swapo operating in uh, the shallow area of South Angola, the area to the east of Ongiva and Anonka, where an enemy detachment was operating. And uh, they assessed from their evaluation that uh, the enemy was extremely uh, wily as well, but inquisitive. So what they did was they wanted to uh, ambush the detachment and they selected the ambush site. Um, and as you well know, the definition of an ambush is a surprise attack on a moving enemy from a hidden position. And that's exactly what happened. Uh, they, they dumped a, a few tires there and uh, doused, doused that with, uh, with petrol. And then they flew with a Puma helicopter over the area where they pre presumed the Swapper detachment were. And then they put a smoke generator up inside the chopper and made it splatter and uh, it flew over the ambush site and sort of uh, started the engine and disappeared over the horizon. And when the enemy came to investigate, they were, of course, ambushed. And this was typical, a typical example of, of jackal operations. Of course, 61 Mechanized Battalion was also highly aware of its military links to a much older conflict, the Anglo-Boer War. The SADF officer corps working on new concepts of how to use heavy equipment in a non-conventional way were also well-read in history, it appears. In fact, in a kind of life-imitating art moment, Thomas Packenham referred to the Boers as using a jackal-like method in the manner in which they deployed 
way back in 1899. It's a, it's a beautiful description where Pakenham describes the, the Boer columns operating in the field as, uh, as operating with the wiliness of a jackal and, of course, with the nimbleness of a hunting cat, which I think is a, is a great description of units such as 3-2 Battalion and, of course, as uh, of 6-1 Mechanized Battalion. Having observed 61 Mech Battalion in action, one cannot help but to recall its snake-like capacity as it moved through the bush, following compass headings almost like a sea creature twisting through southern Angola, a long, long line of vehicles that slid through the night. This was a battalion that used African techniques to deal with the unique requirements of a subtropical war, in thick sand often and on extremely flat territory, which was without high ground. It was like a moving military base, as the Fries explains. And what was interesting about 6-1 Mechanized Battalion, I mean, it was a, it was a large organization. Uh, if we move through the bush, uh, from, from the front end of the column uh, to the rear was approximately 53 kilometers. Mm. Uh, so it took you a while to sort of uh, travel from the 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 end part to the front part. And uh, this column uh, could operate freely in Angola for up to 14 days, carrying its own axles and uh, spare engines and, uh, and, uh, and commodities such as uh, ration packs and fuel bunkers and, and, and even uh, off to bunker, bunkers for, for helicopters and, of course, your own water bunkers. Um, we could uh, operate quite independently for long distances. And I can remember with one particular operation, we traveled for a distance of about 1,600 kilometers further than from Johannesburg uh, to Cape Town at, uh, through the thick bush at an approximate speed of 12 kilometers per hour. Uh, doesn't matter whether that was day or night. And uh, that was quite an achievement if you think about that. But this unit was able to disperse extremely quickly in case of um, an air attack. We talk about we we spoke about Pascal uh, uh, drill, fishbone tactics, um, and uh, they could move uh, far distances and also operate far behind enemy lines, uh, bundabashing, never using um, roads. Pascal drill or fishbone tactics was not something you hear about every day. Perhaps one of the more controversial documents the SADF tacticians were reading as they prepared to launch 61 Mech was known as the Rommel Papers. So much has been written about these, with some claiming that they're merely an attempt to rewrite history. However, the bits about the use of surprise and mobility were very important, at least according to de Vries. The basic tenets are quite simple. Split the enemy's force, then decide how and when you're going to target these two forces by taking the initiative. That sounds all very well out on the dry expanse of the North African desert, but what about the Angolan army's decision to stick to towns in the bush? One of the uh, important books that we studied was uh, Rommel Papers. Now, one of the rules of, uh, for desert warfare that was uh, that Rommel, uh, well, he, he practiced it in Northern Africa, but that was to... Uh, to split the enemy force in terms of time and space, and then to concentrate your own force and to attack at different times. Now, what made warfare in, in, uh, against Fatla, the Angolan conventional forces, uh, easy for us 
was the fact that they were addicted to attrition warfare. With other words, they invested towns uh, with strong point defensive positions, and they were spread out all over Angola. This gave us the chance to sort of move through the gaps in their lines, and then to concentrate our forces and to attack them from, from different directions. Uh, what is interesting that we normally, uh, when you look at the doctrine for an attack, uh, you need to attack with a force of three to one, but normally we attack with a force of one to three. So we were always outnumbered. So surprise and deception was, uh, was extremely important. As we've already heard, the fact that the Russian advisors were present in southern Angola and training the MPLA and the army FAPLA was going to be a big problem, at least in the early phases of the border war. Russia's military involvement was both a positive and a negative for the Angolans. Firstly, access to heavy weapons, intelligence, satellite imagery and high-end communication equipment was a big advantage for FAPLA. At the same time, in actual battle conditions, the Russian style of leadership meant that the average troop was not encouraged to use their own initiative. This is somewhat ironic because in the Second World War, the Russians had developed initiative at section level, particularly during the Battle of Stalingrad. And yet, their style of training in Angola was more inflexible, which was to the South Africans' advantage. After the MPLA's success in taking over Angola in 1976, Moscow believed in its military prowess to such an extent that it moved to invade Afghanistan in 1978. There is a direct link between the two parts of the world. Inevitably, Angola was part of this gigantic global stage. The period 1976 to 1979 saw an extensive reorganization of the Angolan army, the Exocito Popular de Angola, or EPA, into infantry brigades along conventional Soviet lines. But the rigid structure lacked an effective counterinsurgency capability, and Soviet advisors attached to each brigade were almost their de facto leaders. Since the Angolan Air Force, or Forcia Area Popular de Angola, or FAPA, not to be confused with FAPLA, lacked pilots and personnel who were qualified, Eastern European and even other African pilots filled the gap and the Soviets ran air logistics until the late 1980s. So what started to happen was that the Soviet support began to paper over the real situation that the MPLA was one of the weakest of the Angolan liberation movements. As I've pointed out before, this obfuscated what was really happening, that there was a fundamental ideological and financial dependency on Moscow by a weak Luandan government, which began to indulge itself in massive bouts of corruption. This did not bode well for FAPLA and the Angolan forces on the ground, who suffered from morale deficiencies. No analysis of 61 MEC is complete without an understanding that the SADF was following an old handbook called Blitzkrieg. For all its undertones of Nazi extremes, the military reality was sound. Fast-moving mechanized forces striking quickly and with powerful blows at an enemy who's not nimble. It was all about what's known as Kesselslacht, or cauldron battle, and a number of other basic tenets, Schwerpunkt, or the crucial focal point, and a number of others. Here's Roland de Vries with a few more. There were basic operational concepts taught to the Germans, which they applied with their blitzkrieg concepts, which I found invaluable, and I'm going to mention it quickly. The first one was Kesselflachten, referring back to the concepts of Rommel that you were speaking about, and uh, in the way that the enemy was following the concepts of attrition warfare, whilst we were applying 
the victims of maneuver warfare. So Kesselschlachten implies battles of encirclement and annihilation. And then the next one, of course, is Schwerpunkt, uh, the yellow concept of focus of main effort, where you need to assess the vulnerabilities in the enemy's makeup and then to concentrate your strength against the enemy's weakness. Other concepts that uh, was extremely important was the concept of Auftragstaktik, the concept of mission command, which we refer to in Afrikaans as Mattel's initiative, command initiative, allowing control of your uh, execution of your of your plans down to the lowest level and allowing subalterns to, to make their decisions and allowing them to make errors even, even if they don't have sufficient uh, information. Other concepts were beweeglichkeit, the whole principle of movement and uh, improvisation. Uh, I can mention one example of 6-1 make during Operation DAISY when we did a, a deep infiltration uh, traveling through extremely difficult terrain. And uh, it was during the wet season, so it was difficult for the rattles to uh, travel along these uh, sort of deeply rutted areas and, and thick sand and, and heavy bush. What the troops did was to cut off stumps of, of trees and load it onto the rattles. And as the first rattle traverses a, a, a fording area, they will throw the stumps down behind them and they will make a bridge as the rattle columns progress along that advance. So these were typical, some of the improvisations that the troops did automatically because they were thinking on the field. And then, of course, the last concept uh, the Germans taught me was the concept of Einheitsprinzip, uh, integration of effort, unity of command, which is extremely important. And this is something we, we exercised a lot at 61 Mech uh, in preparation for operations, allowing subalterns and, and seconding commands to take over command positions to participate in planning so that everybody in the unit, unit knew exactly uh, what to do and how to do it. And uh, this allowed a lot of latitude down to the junior uh, leader group level. Every battalion and every army has its standard operating procedure, SOP, and 61 Mech was no different. As the story of the border war unfolds, you'll hear more details about the SOP, but it was basically handed to all new recruits who rapidly learned that the favoured drill by all 61 was fire belt action, or Fuhr Hordel Coming back to this little booklet again, uh, the SOP, the Standing Operating Procedure of 61 Mech, one thing which was, which was extremely important uh, during uh, training and preparing for battle were certain battle principles and concepts that we applied. Uh, I'm going to name three, which is uh, the command marching ready, uh, battle ready, and fire ready. This is, these are short, uh, quick orders, commands that you give, which uh, means a lot to happen after you've given the command which uh, is automatically executed by the troops. If you say marching ready, they know exactly what must, what must happen. Now, with regards to uh, the practicing of, uh, of immediate action drills, what was extremely important was the ability of, of our small combat teams and, and sub-subunits to be able to group and to regroup extremely quickly uh, on a command. 
and then even change uh, uh, radio frequencies on the move uh, to come under command of another organization. What we practiced day and night was the concept of fire and maneuver forward and rearward and to the flanks. This was something that the troops could do as if by, as if by second nature. And another thing that we were extremely good at was at fire support coordination. And I think our organizations, there were probably very few of them uh, in militaries elsewhere uh, who, could, who could attack from the line of advance. With other words, automatically going into an attack, the mortars coming into action, 60 millimeter mortars being fired from the roofs of, uh, of the rifles, and then the troops with, with great comfort going into action in extended line attack formation. Apart from these drills, the SOP included handling prisoners of war, mine drills, clearing enemy trenches, operational movement by road and cross-country, fire support, fighting inside towns, and maintenance of equipment, amongst others. And so, we'll end this episode, special Christmas edition. Thanks again to Roland de Vries for his initial comments about 61 Mech. We're going to hear a lot more about this organization through the series and from other members involved. Next, we'll return to the day-to-day border war and meet an amazing woman called Tani Pompi, who was a one-person communications center for Tsumem Groefontein and Otavi. We'll also hear about the escalation of attacks on civilians, particularly white farmers, which started in 1979. Please rate the podcast on iTunes if you can, or if you have comments or want to contact me, you can do that through the website abwarpodcast.com or direct message me on Twitter. My handle is at Des Latham. Until next, happy Christmas. Goodbye.